Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. So we are going to be talking about, uh, or we have been talking about, the seven deadly sins in our series called Creature Comfort. And uh, we've been looking at, while they're not uh, called this in scripture, uh, we've been talking about the seven sins that uh, biblical scholars and people in church history have kind of narrowed down all sins, kind of fit into one of these or stem from one of these categories of like the big original or one of the original sins of these seven So it can kind of all get traced back to one of these. And we've been kind of going through and dealing uh, and addressing each of them. And we've been talking about the vice, which is the sin. And then the virtue, which is the um, action or the antithesis of it. uh, That is the better way to live, the godly way to live. And so the seven deadly sins, we're just kind of reviewing, going through this. They are pride greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and laziness or sloth. That's it's just more fun to say sloth, you know. But those are the seven deadly sins. And we've talked about how each comes from a desire for more of something, for a selfish desire for more of something. And so I'm going to review what um, all those things are. I know there's a slide for them, but you know. Uh, Here we are. So for pride, the desire is for more self. With greed, the desire is for more stuff. With lust, the desire is for more pleasure. Envy is a desire for more of theirs. Gluttony is the desire for more entertainment. Wrath is for more fleshly emotions. And laziness is for more comfort, is a desire for more comfort and kind of complacency. And so tonight, the one that we're going to be talking about is wrath. All right? So that is what we're looking at. Our vice for tonight, the sin we are addressing, is wrath. Now, wrath kind of sounds like an old timey word, right? Like no one really uses wrath like regularly anymore. Um, it's like, oh, the, the wrath of God is coming or someone might, you know, maybe we think of old books like the grapes of wrath, like lit- famous literature. But it's not a word we get in just regular conversation anymore. Although you should try to say wrath more because it's kind of fun and it really gets like the point across. Um, But anyways, so wrath, a definition for wrath, while that word can make us think it's not something we deal with, when you look at the definition for wrath, you see it hits actually a little bit closer to home. So wrath is defined as strong, vengeful anger or indignation, retribution, punishment for an offense or a crime, divine chastisement. So the idea of wrath is seeking revenge when you've been wronged or seeking to or responding in anger when someone has done something against you or mistreated you or said something to you. And your response is 
anger. It's a response that just lets your emotions be in charge. And so that's what Wrath is talking about, this idea of looking for revenge or seeking to balance the scales yourself. So what does that look like in our lives? Maybe some of you are already thinking of uh, situations or people that you might um, feel wrath against. And what it kind of looks like in our lives is like bitterness, grudges, resentment, uh, an individualistic mindset, thinking just only of your own perspective, or a lack of empathy is another way of describing that. It's people who don't want to forgive and who want to be angry. And we can all be that person sometimes, right? Some of you, like, know, like, oh, I have an arch nemesis. Like, because they did me wrong in the third grade and we've not forgiven them since. And that's a form of wrath, harboring that bitterness or holding that grudge. And I think everyone can uh, admit that they've had a grudge against someone or they've harbored bitterness towards someone. And as a culture, as a people, uh, it just as individuals, we can all have that tendency to not want to respond in forgiveness or with empathy, but instead to respond with anger. So I'm going to read some scholarly literature right now. So, you know, you've been out of school for a few weeks, so we're going to catch some learning tonight, okay? Some scholarly literature about wrath and bitterness. So it's a different subject. It's kind of fun. Um, so anyways, there is an internet researcher by the name of Alice Marwix, and she purposefully just researches the internet and online discourse. And something she has um, been studying in the wake of all things 2020 is how it has led to, um, it's fostered an environment where people are suspicious of one another and more willing than ever to behave aggressively towards each other. So maybe you've seen this or you've heard about this or experienced it yourself, but she's found that when groups of people, and this is most particularly seen on social media, but we see it in real life as well, that when there are groups of people who, um, I'm sorry, let me find my quote. Okay, when groups of people on social media believed that their moral code or their beliefs had been violated, they felt so justified in their harassment of their targets that they refused to acknowledge it as harassment. So maybe you've seen that or you've experienced that where because you did something someone didn't think was what you should be doing, they come after you and she's seen it on social media, but just people are more excited to harass each other and they don't even consider it harassment because, oh, well, they think differently than me, so this anger is justified towards them. And she's seen that this is a trend happening in our world and in our society, in our society today. She said, people have shut down the ability to have a conversation. It encourages dehumanization and seeing people as the other rather than as actual people. 
And so she's seeing this, researchers, researchers are seeing this, but there is this like collective mentality in our world today that I'm sure you have seen and experienced, and especially in the last couple years, where there are angry mobs or people who lack understanding, people whose desire for power and to be right or to be justified has led them to respond only in anger, and people have lost the ability to empathize or to forgive. And when you allow wrath like that to just have free reign in your life, what happens is you become someone who is bitter and individualistic. And so bitterness, I want to talk about for a second. How many of you can like think of someone who's bitter that you know, right? Like, yeah, there's like Lots of people can think of someone who is still holding on. I know I can think of people who are still holding on to a wrong or something that happened to them maybe years ago, maybe decades ago, that they are still harboring bitterness and anger towards that situation. So bitterness is anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. Psychologists define a bitter individual as someone who is often angry, sad, and disappointed, an individual that, listen to this, an individual that is so bitter that they are negative and they create negativity and they create conflict. Imagine being so bitter and having bitterness that just dwells in you and is so obvious that you can actually create negativity. And that is what bitterness leads to when you're harboring bitterness and anger towards someone. Dr. David Metzner, we're getting uh, clinical again, is a clinical psychologist, and he describes bitterness as an enemy, a slow poison, which gradually destroys the life of the host. So gradually destroying the life of the person who is holding that bitterness towards someone. He goes on to say that when you allow bitterness to be within yourself, you set yourself on a path for self-destruction. Now these are not, he's not speaking from a biblical perspective. I don't know like his religious background He's speaking clinically and as a psychologist that when you harbor bitterness, it sets you on a path for self-destruction and it slowly kills you. Wrath is also manifested in what um, I had described earlier from that woman's quote who does all the research, in an individual mindset or a lack of uh, empathy. When we become so angry with a person that we lose the ability to see them as a person. When you are so mad at them, they become right like your enemy or your arch nemesis. You can't even think of them as a human. An MIT Social Studies of Science and Technology founder and professor, Dr. Sherry Turkle, has called this current era in our world, post-COVID-19, um, a state of anime, which is a term that displays the idea that as a culture, as individuals, we're more individualistic than ever. We lived through a very difficult time. We're still living through a difficult time. We don't have anyone outside of 
um, church, we don't have any one like person or authority that we can really trust, right? You can get one expert telling you one thing on one news channel and then you just go over to a different channel and a different expert is telling you the complete opposite on another channel. And it's caused us to just build up our own um, belief systems. And while it's needed in navigating some of what's going on in the world, it's caused us to lose the ability to empathize with others. And so we get in this cycle where we are harboring bitterness towards someone, we're so angry at them, and we can't even see them as a person. And our whole goal becomes to, be, uh, to become the victor in the situation. That's what wrath is. That's what that bitterness is, is it's looking to tip the scales. Someone has done me wrong, so they need wrong to happen to them. And God doesn't want us living with that mindset, but that's what wrath looks like. It looks like people who are bitter, people who create negativity in the places they go, people who are individualistic and they can't empathize with others. And when we are stuck in just our perspective and stuck in just our bitterness, that's when we start seeking vengeance, seeking to see other people brought low so we can be made high. And that is what wrath looks like in a more practical way in our current day and age. So wrath, that's the vice. We did a lot of talking about it. Now we're going to look at what the virtue is. And maybe some of you could guess what the virtue for wrath is, but the answer is forgiveness. And so that, after all we've said about wrath, what I really want to talk about tonight is the antithesis of wrath, which is forgiveness. Psychologists generally define forgiveness as, listen to this, okay? This is, this is heavy, and this is hard to live with, especially when people have hurt you. But forgiveness is a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 touches on this more. It reads, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Get rid of brawling. That's a great word. Stop beating each other up, okay? Get rid of brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as Christ God, in Christ God forgave you. So these are things were to put away at the beginning. And these things we're told to put away are uncontrolled emotions of wrath. We're told to put away bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. All these things that are usually our default response to being hurt or to being wronged. You, usually we will find ourselves wanting to act though, that way. And we're told instead to put that away and to forgive we gain control over these emotions of wrath when we forgive. And we should seek to show kindness and forgiveness towards others. And it tells us why in this verse here, right? 
It tells us at the end that we should forgive because we've been forgiven. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God sees us in all our messed upness and all our sinfulness and all the things we've done to hurt other people ourselves. And he sees us and we're made perfect before him and he forgives us. And that's why we should be forgiving is we're coming and we're forgiving from that place. Ephesians 4.26, so just a little bit uh, up ahead in that chapter, reads, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. As um, you grow up in life, people love to use this verse as like marriage advice. Even like the, uh, the day, like on my wedding day, Nate and I were sitting at like the table eating our chipotle and because we had Chipotle at our wedding and Chick-fil-A. Um, and so we're sitting at the table. I'm eating my Chipotle. I'm very happy. Like I just got married. I look great. And um, a lady came up to the table and she like puts her hands down. She's like, I have some advice for you. And we're like, oh, good, thank you. And she's like, never go to bed angry. And we were like, okay. <laughs> and um, that a lot of people use this verse to mean that. Now, as a side note, sometimes when you're angry, you need to just go to bed. Like, sometimes you're angry because you're tired. And if you keep trying to, like, fight while you're uh, tired, it's just going to make things worse. So sometimes you do just, like, sometimes I need a nap, and then I love everybody after my nap. Like, you know? So that's not what this verse is talking about, though. This verse wasn't meant to just be, like, quick marriage advice from like random ladies. You're like, how did you get to my wedding? Who are you? Um, and that's not necessarily what it's meant for. What God is saying, what this verse means, what's being written here is that we're not to take our anger with someone into the next day. It's that same thing with talking about bitterness. When you're holding on to anger you feel towards another person, that's just going to get worse and worse each day. It's going to eat you alive. And God's saying in this verse, it's just stop. Don't bring it into the next day. It's time to let that thing go and let that anger go and let that hurt go. And you don't want to go to bed with this because you don't want to wake up with it, right? How just like awful is it to just wake up angrier than you went to bed, right? We want to wake up like feeling good to go, have like our morning juice and like feel good about life and ourselves. And when you're taking bitterness into the next day, like that's not going to happen. When you're taking that anger with you into the next day, it's just going to keep hurting you. And so we need to forgive because forgiveness is what's going to allow us to release ourselves from that anger, from that hurt, from that pain. But Forgiveness is hard, right? Sometimes it's easy to forgive, and then sometimes it's very difficult. My, um, I tell Nate all the time he needs to stop apologizing because he's like a big apologizer for things like he'll accidentally knock something over, and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm like, Nate, that, stop. Like, you don't need to apologize for knocking something over. Like, it's okay. Sometimes people knock things over. Um, we all need help in that area sometimes. But um, so it's easy when something didn't 
hurt you when Nate knocks a glass off the table, it's very easy for me to be like, Nate, it's okay. Like, you don't need to be sorry about that. But when people actually do something to hurt you or there's an ongoing hurt or uh, mistrust or just pain that you're dealing with, that's very hard to forgive people from. But we're told to forgive, and it is going to require things of us that are hard. And so the first thing that forgiveness requires is forgiveness requires empathy. So in the same chapter, I've been in Ephesians 4. Are you guys, like, awake? Everyone's there? Yeah. All right, cool. Thank you. Just making sure. I can only see, like, the very front row. And so, I mean, like, you guys are in it, so I'm glad. But I want to make sure everyone's good. Um, All right, so in Ephesians 4, we've been in Ephesians 4, and that's where all these verses on forgiveness forgiveness have been. Up in verse 2, before we got to all the verses on forgiveness, we read this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So here, um, they're discussing within the church body how we should be treating each other. And the goal in the church body should be that people are not hurting each other, right? The hope would be that the people you go to church with and the people who are walking with God uh, alongside you, that they would not hurt you, that they would not do things um, against you that would hurt or wrong you. But inevitably, people are people, right? And even your Christian friends, even people who you would think, oh, we should get along, they'll do things to hurt you. And God calls us to seek unification, and that requires an empathetic heart. It requires us to have a forgiving heart and to understand that we've all made mistakes and we've all hurt others, and we need to have that mindset when others have hurt us to remember that we ourselves have hurt other people. And as hard it is as it can be, empathy to another person's situation, even if they've hurt you, is an important component of forgiveness. Like I had mentioned in that article earlier where the um, researcher was noticing people can't even empathize anymore or they have difficulty doing that. In the church, we should see people as people. And we should be able to um, give them grace because we've been shown grace and be willing to see them as people and know that we've all been on the other side. So we're willing to understand as best we can what they're going through. But empathy is hard, but it's worth it, and it's an important step in forgiving. Now, what I don't mean is that we justify or accept pain or mistreatment. I want to be clear about that. Sometimes people hurt us, and it, I mean, we don't deserve to be hurt. And so I'm not saying you empathize to make excuses and to give them the right to continue to behave that way. But you empathize with them because you recognize that you're also a person who's made mistakes. And when you can see the other people as people, it will help you to forgive. And it will help you, once you forgive, to heal and move forward more quickly and in a more healthy way. 
So it's realizing that humans are flawed and you don't want to give too much power to the people who have hurt you. And being able to empathize and forgive is part of that. And we give grace. Again, just like that verse said, we forgive because we were forgiven in Christ. And so we show grace because of all the grace shown to us. Now, another thing required of forgiveness is this. And this one's hard too. Forgiveness requires letting go. I hate the quote like, well, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Because if you are saying that, then you didn't really forgive, right? If you're going to hold on to it and stay mad about it, um, that's not forgiveness. And forgiveness requires letting go of pain and of hurt and of the ways we've been um, wronged. And forgiveness is releasing yourself from the need to find your own justice, right? We start planning, like, how am I going to get back at this person? First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to make a secret Snapchat, and then I'm going to add them, and then I'm going to send this DM to someone else, and then, I like, whatever. You start, like, hatching your plan of how you're going to, like, bring ruin to this person, and that's not what we want to do. We want to be people who let it go and instead release our hurt and the outcome to God. In Exodus, when the Egyptians or when the Israelites finally were set free by the Egyptians. So the people of God had been slaves to the Egyptians for hundreds of years, and Moses was sent by God to um, get the people out of bondage. And finally, after many plagues, I'm sure many of you know the story, the Pharaoh finally said, okay, you can go, like, get out of here. So Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They come out of Egypt. They're just on their journey. They've just been freed. Their whole life and future is in front of them. They have like new hopes and new dreams. And they come up to a large body of water called the Red Sea. And then they find out that Pharaoh has changed his mind. He decided he wants to keep Uh, the Israelites as his slaves. And so the Pharaoh and his entire army, they've gotten in chariots and they are coming to where the Israelites are. And their plan is to capture them once again and bring them back to be enslaved in Egypt. So they get to the Red Sea and they start freaking out. They have People coming behind them, they have a huge body of water in front of them, and they all start doing the thing you do when um, you're scared, and they're getting upset at Moses. They're like, why'd you bring us here if we're all just going to die right here? They're trying to figure out what their next move is. Some of them are just recognizing, well, I guess I'm going to go be a slave again. They've already given up. But then Moses says something amazing in Exodus 14, verse 14. And he says to the people of Israel, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And what happens next? Moses takes his staff, he holds it over the Red Sea, and the entire water parts into a dry pathway and they all walk over to the other side. And then what happens? The... um, 
Pharaoh and his army. They think, oh, perfect, a path to the other side. We'll keep chasing them. They come through, and then Moses, and, or through the power of God, releases the water, and the sea swallows up um, all of the army that was coming to take them and bring them back into slavery. Why am I saying all this? Moses said, you just need to hold your peace. The Lord will fight for you. And how much better was God's plan to part the sea and let them cross to the other side than the other plans they could have been hatching up? They wouldn't have been able to fight them in a battle when an army came with weapons against people with their children and their animals, and there was no fight there. And they also would have were planning, maybe we just give up and we go back into slavery. And so if they had not given it over to the Lord to fight their battle, they could have been marched right back into slavery. But Moses' advice here is good advice for us as well, that we let the Lord fight our battles, that we let the Lord... Um, work his plan out and his will in a situation, and we hold our peace. Another verse that speaks to this same idea is Romans 12, 9. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I'm not saying we give it to God and that gives us peace because we're like, guess what? God's going to get you so much better than I was going to get you. Like, he's coming for you. God, I give this person to you. Have your way. Take them out. Like, lightning from heaven. Like, whatever it takes. That's not where we're getting our peace from because we think God's going to do something um, worse than we could do. No, it's that we're finding peace in letting go. And it is so hard and it is so difficult to let go of our hurt and to let go of our pain and to just release that to God. But that's what we're called to do. We find peace when we release control, when we don't have to be in charge of the vengeance, when we don't have to be the one trying to control the hurt anymore. Um, but when we can let God be in control, trust that he cares for us, and just give, it's such a release to just give it to him. Uh, I'm going to sum it up here, and the worship team can come back up while I close. But in the initial definition of wrath that I read at the beginning, there was one part in particular that really stood out to me. And that part was the phrase, divine chastisement. So to chastise is to punish, and divine would mean God or God punishing. So this idea of God punishing is the idea of divine chastisement. What I'm saying is, so often we seek to be the divine of the hurt in our lives. We try to be God over our hurt and over our pain, and we try to do what we're not meant to do. Wrath is seeking to be in control of all your hurt, but out of control. Being the one, you want to hold on to your hurt. You want to hold on to the pain. You want to stay bitter. You want to stay angry. And that's what it looks like when we're trying to hold on to that. 
but instead we need to give our hurt to the God who made us and who wants what's best for us because he knows what we need. Now, in the Bible, when we talk about forgiveness a lot, the goal is usually, or the goal should be, for reconciliation. We want to get to a place where if two people have a conflict, they can forgive one another for all the events that led to the conflict, that enabled the conflict, and that they can move forward in peace and in a godly way together. That's the goal. So for starters tonight, if you have that conflict with someone, the goal would be that tonight, if you're the person who needs to apologize, uh, you call them, you text them, you lean over and say you're sorry to them right now. And if you're the person who needs to forgive, that you would be quick to forgive them in return so you can move forward in um, rebuilding that relationship. Are people saying they're sorry right now? That's good. Um, but also, we know that's not always the case. And more often than not, we have to forgive people who never said they were sorry to us. And that is difficult, but it's what God calls us to do. So, hey. Thank you. Um, so, we are going to practice being people who forgive even when we're not being apologized to. Um, and we forgive because God says so, but we also forgive because it's good for your health. And I want to pull up right now a list of um, some things that you find when you practice forgiveness. This is a list that comes from, again, this is not... Um, these are not people who are coming from a biblical perspective. These are doctors through the Mayo Clinic, and all they do is research um, different mental health uh, issues and, um, and health issues. But they formulated this list of doctors and psychologists and people who've dedicated their lives to this of what actually there is a physical manifestation of better health, um, both mentally and physically, when we can be people who forgive. And so I want to look at this list. Um, it says, what are benefits of forgiving someone? Letting go of grudges and bitterness can make way for improved health and peace of mind. Forgiveness can lead to healthier relationships, improved mental health, Less anxiety, less stress, less hostility, lower blood pressure, uh, fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, and improved self-esteem. God tells us to do it because it's a better way of living. And I feel like we've seen that so much with all of these um, sins that we've looked at. The way that God calls us to live is healthier for us. It's more fruitful for us. It's more fulfilling for us. And so that's what we're seeing here. We're called to forgiveness. The virtue to wrath is to be someone who forgives, forgives when no one's saying they're sorry, and doesn't forgive. It's not a weak thing to forgive. It's not weak to forgive someone who's never apologized, but it's just 
allowing yourself to be someone who releases their hurt to God, who doesn't want to be a bitter person that creates negative energy wherever they go. We want to be people who look like this, who are experiencing more health and less um, reasons to be depressed and less anxiety, that we're just willing to let things go and walk forward in the good things that God has for us. And it's hard to do that when we're blinded by our anger and by our bitterness. So we need to learn to forgive and to move forward into what God has for us. So let's pray.